want to always remind you that we're talking about this thing called the Harvest Vision. And the four Ds, discover, develop, deploy, that really is our, our simple MO. These are our marching orders. This is our mandate. The discover piece is that idea of discovering who you are in Christ. So this idea of discover, this is a critical piece. And the, the critical piece regarding that is that until we really know who we are in Christ and we're secure in our identity, we'll continue to, to float around like a, like a ship without a rudder. I mean, we'll be blown back and forth, as the Scripture says, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And one of the things that I found in my own personal journey is that when I begin to realize who I am in Christ, the shift for me, I'm going to find that phone, it's driving me crazy. Maybe, I don't even know where my phone is. Anyway, so um, that's really odd. But being blown around, tossed to and fro by everyone in doctrine, what I found was that when I, my identity in Christ became secure and I understood that I was loved, I understood that it was unconditional, I understood that, that He had me, as John 10 says, and securely in the palm of His hand. Once that dropped for me, the ball dropped, and it was like, wait, this is truth. This isn't a theory. This isn't just theology. I'm not just logicking about theos. That's what theology is, thinking about God. I'm, it literally is true to me now. I don't, I don't think this. I know this. So when you know something to be true, what happens is it releases confidence in you. Not self-confidence, but God-confidence. Does that make sense? So now you walk, at it, you walk differently you, you walk in security and confidence. And I'm telling you, that confidence will, in a good way, disarm people around you when you have conversations and when you're leaking out. They, they want to hear what you have to say if they know you truly believe what you're saying. And so that's, that's the, that is the develop piece. The other piece, uh, or the discover piece, the develop piece is what we're doing here. We're developing. We're growing. We're studying. We're diving in. We're learning history. We're learning, you know, Words here and there, Greek, we're un, un, uh, unpacking things, and we're literally going a little bit deeper, layer by layer, line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Scripture says. That's the develop piece. That will never end. Discovery is something that happens, and you'll continue to discover and grow layer by layer, but also developing. We will be disciples until we cross over, right? We'll never stop growing. Ever learning, ever growing should be our motto, that when I... When I'm in my 80s, in 90s, if the Lord allows me to tarry that long on this planet, I want to continue to grow, and I want to continue to be teachable and have a teachable spirit throughout my, my entire life, and knowing that I can learn from anyone. I can learn from a 12-year-old uh, speaking their heart and getting an insight into something that maybe I didn't know before because they've experienced God in a little bit different nuance than I have. So always developing. The deploy piece is this. It's, it's where Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. And it's where we're saying, go leak out. Be filled, then go overflow and leak out life everywhere you go so that those who come in contact with you, they get something on them. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the line for the, I'll never forget Ghostbusters and Bill Murray, that ghost hit him, he says, he slimed me. In a very real sense, we're sliming people with the good news. We're gospelizing everywhere we go. We're carriers of this good news. And everybody who comes in contact with us should sense something. That's what I was talking about on Sunday, that our life is compelling. 
There's something about our life that's compelling. Not perfect. Not perfectionism. That's not going to happen this side of uh, Beulah land, so to speak. I, so on this side, we understand we're, we're, we're jars of clay, right? Cracked and marred and broken. And, but in, in another sense, we're also, though, carriers of what God is doing, what he's up to. And it, it leaks out everywhere we go. And so our lives become compelling to those around us to where they now want to ask questions. Yes, ma'am. Excuse me. There are some that I am repelling. No. They're fighting yes. my overflow. Yes. Okay, so that's a good point. I'm going to say that out loud, too, because it's being recorded. So Melissa said in her world, sometimes as she's becoming compelling, it's actually creating repelling. It's compelling and repelling, and that brings us to the last D. We become disruptive. The very nature of Jesus... Now, that's not rebellion, that's not rebellious, that's not uh, caustic. Uh, I've been around pe- Christians who are repulsive for the wrong reason. They, they repelled people because they were just jerks and you didn't want to be around them. You know, they, they may have been redeemed in their spirit, but their, their, their flesh had a long way to go, you know what I'm saying? And so, so they were actually difficult to be around, and yet they claimed to be followers of Jesus. What you're talking about is that as you're leaking life and leaking hope and leaking peace and leaking joy, it's unsettling and disruptive to people. Now, I know when I was in my worst state in my down season, I'd get around people who were happy. It would bother me. Like, why are they so happy? I'm not. I'm struggling. So, Derek, we'll start with you quick. Um, and that's one of our key words that we use now is offended. Offended, Everybody yeah. Uses the other day that, you know, my, if the word of God offends offend you, then I've done my job. <laughs> because there's no reason to come to a repentance if I'm not offended. You don't do anything about stuff that's going on in your life unless you feel like something is disruptive, as you said. Right. So they're going to have to make a choice. Either I'm going to be offended and say, hey, why? Right. Or I'm going to just remain offended and the little caveat to that, Derek, that I would add, Derek said, in, in a sense, what we do is offensive, or people, and that's kind of a catchword right now in our culture, everybody's offended about something, right? But another piece of that is we don't be, we, we're not offensive in nature. We're loving people. I mean, we're, we're, we're killing them with kindness in a sense. I mean, in a sense, we're loving people, and that in and of itself is disruptive, it's very disruptive. I mean, in a political scene and a lot of what celebrities are doing, and I'm watching things and the news develop just as everyone else is, you know, everybody's tolerant when things are going their way, but then when, when the political winds shift and the cultural winds shift, suddenly we're not tolerant anymore. Now, we've, now we're hating. And so I'm watching all that develop, and to me it's just a study in sociology at the end of the day. And so we don't want to become offensive, but we will be disruptive when we show up with crazy love as Francis Chan's book called. Colonel, you got something? The scripture says that we have an aroma. <laughs> to those who are seeking life, we have the odor of life. It's a yeah. smell. To those who are not, we have the odor of death. Yeah. So you can clear out a room one way or another <laughs> as you walk into it and haven't done a thing. Some people will be drawn to you, and the mm-hmm. rest of them either hate your guts or they book out the door. Yeah. And that's right, the aroma of Christ. 
everywhere we go, that leaking out, it's, there's, there's the aroma piece of that. It's kind of like when, when uh, I don't know what your grandmother wore. I don't think mine wore white diamonds by Elizabeth Taylor or something because she had this very familiar smell. And before she'd get to the room, you knew she was coming because that aroma was coming off of her. It's like, oh, Granny just walked in. I mean, it, it, and it, you know, it, was, it was sweet, you know, it was a beautiful thing. But now if I ever smell that smell, that aroma, I recognize it immediately. And, and Jesus carries that aroma. Quickly, we're going to move forward. Yeah, there's that aroma piece. Yeah, fragrance of death. So here's the thing. We want to be life givers, life carriers, and bring life everywhere we go. We show up with life. Christ is our life. We talked about that for like a solid year. That he is the way, the truth, and what? The life. And we show up with him. And if people stumble, and the very word offense means to stumble over. It literally, it's a stumbling block or a stumbling stone or stumbling rock of offense, stumbling rock. It's something you trip over. And so our goal is not to offend. Our goal is to disrupt in this sense that it gets people's attention because most of us have never changed without some kind of disruption. And that's, so it's not a negative piece. The word offend has a negative connotation in our culture today, but it doesn't have to be negative. So that's the four D's. That's the harvest vision. You'll see power in the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. And we talked about what does a witness do? They answer the questions. questions in Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So we'll keep moving. There's the word disrupt. I want to bring this up again. And I want to share another quote from Hugh Halter with you. Disrupt means a break or interruption in the normal course or continuation of some activity or process. So that means something is broken. It's simple. There's a break in, in the action. And the synonyms are break up, to disintegrate, that means to take apart, to fracture, fragment, disturb, it can mean upheaval as well. So there's some synonyms about disruption. Again, we don't show up and, and are, we're not offensive. We don't show up to offend. We just show up and the disruption is a positive thing that happens because Christ, the aroma of Christ, enters the room. And uh, in a very real way, Melissa, it's disruptive in that sense. Here's the deal. What I found in those scenarios, and I've been in those scenarios many times, is that initially there may be a repelling because people don't know what to do with that. If you're responding in love when others are gossiping and you're responding in a positive way when everyone else wants to bash the boss or the supervisor or whatever, I've been in those scenarios too, and you're responding different, then what's happening is you're coming in a different spirit. And it's disruptive to the status quo. Does that make sense? You know, every office, every family has an ecosystem, right? It's sociological, but, but we all have... Uh, let's say you have a, a family that has an alcoholic, and then you've got a codependent spouse, and over the years, they create a system. And it's a system of push, pull, tension, balance, and they navigate that. But as soon as one of those people gets healthy... Let's say the codependent starts to draw boundaries and starts to say no, and I'm no longer responsible for your bad day. 
I'm no longer responsible for your bad mood. I'm no longer responsible for your issue. And they stop owning the other person's stuff because that's what codependency is. It's taking responsibility for somebody else's mess constantly. And when that happens, it disrupts the ecosystem of the family. In a work environment, there's an ecosystem. You get a new employee, it shakes things up. It disrupts. And then everybody settles in. The hen house settles down. Everybody finds their place in the pecking order. Is this making sense? Simple sociology here. But what happens is, let's say one of you starts acting differently. Where before you might have been in on the gossip, or before you might have been in on the boss bashing, or before you might have been in on taking a shortcut to get your job done, or before you might have fudged something here and there, and now you're not doing that. Guess what? You become disruptive by doing the right thing. So in any given culture or ecosystem, any change is disruptive in nature, even good change. Does that make sense? In any ecosystem. So even when somebody's getting healthy, and you're getting better, and you're growing in your faith, and you're becoming more like and starting to look a lot more like Jesus, and you're representing Him better and better as you grow and mature, it will be disruptive in its own sense. But it's not because you're doing the wrong thing and not because you're trying to be offensive. It's simply because you're changing the rules in the ecosystem. Does that make sense? didn't mean to go into a sociology lesson here, but it's, it's so common. And when you're aware of that, it helps you understand a little bit more of the why behind the what. Why are people getting upset with me? I'm just doing the right thing. Well, that's upsetting. It's disruptive in nature. So to disrupt. Now, look, look at this. Hugh Halter wrote the book. This is out of the book, Flesh. I've got this book as well. But he wrote a book called um, uh, The, the uh, Tangible Kingdom. And I read that book many years ago, and it completely wrecked me in a good way. I mean, I wept as I read the book. And uh, so Hugh's had a huge impact on my life. Um, and he, wrote, he writes this, We love Jesus as a baby on Christmas, and Jesus risen from the grave on Easter. But somehow, we miss Jesus the man, the teacher, the sage, the rebel, the subversive king, the local hero, the neighborhood friend. And, and that really got me thinking in terms of it's easy when we celebrate the baby Jesus, and it's easy when we celebrate the risen Lord on Easter, because all that's very historical, it's very distant. But it's Jesus the man, and what's, what that is called, we were talking about this a minute ago, it's called the incarnation. The incarnation is what we're going to talk about on Sunday, where Jesus left his heavenly place of deity and came to the earth, and John 1.14 says, and the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood and lived among us. And so we struggle with the humanity of Christ, and yet it's the humanity of Christ that's going to reach humans. The very people that you're praying for that you work with or people that are in your family that don't know Jesus and that you want so badly for them to come to Christ and step over the line and become a follower of Jesus and discover joy, discover peace, discover the ability to navigate crisis and the craziness of the world in which we live, they're going to come to Jesus when they relate to Him on both a human level and a divine level. They have to see Jesus as the one who walked among us. 
Because if they don't, they'll never have a relationship with Jesus. They'll just have a distant respect for the one who sits on the throne and has little baby angels flying around him. You know, it's all this very esoteric, mysterious, far away. But for me, as a young person, when I stepped over the line to follow Jesus, it wasn't the Jesus sitting on a throne with a crown and lions on either side of him and, you know, angels flying around. It was the Jesus who knelt down to the woman that was caught in adultery and basically whispered to her, I got this, you're going to be okay. I'm here with you. I'm down in the dirt with you. It's the Jesus who, who would touch a leper. His humanness touched another person. That is what wooed my heart. And then the fact that he was willing to die for me wooed my heart. All of those pieces came together. And so I want to encourage us as a church family, as we continue to grow, we continue to mature, we continue to develop, that we lean into and begin to think about. If you haven't spent time meditating, thinking about Jesus, how often do you think about Jesus, the person, and the fact that the disciples had a relationship with a person? as opposed to just the baby Jesus in Christmas and the, the kingly Jesus, the one who's risen from the dead on Easter. And that we, we celebrate in the pageants when they're glowing and white and everybody's in awe and it's a beautiful moment. And those are beautiful moments. They're amazing. I'm not diminishing the value of those. I'm just saying I think we need to elevate what he did for those 33 years as well, don't you think? He walked among us. He put on an earth suit and then he moved into the neighborhood. And now our call, our mandate is to take the aroma, the mantle, the life of Jesus, and also move into the neighborhood and represent, to represent. That's what represent means, to represent him well so that people see him. Annette and I have been having a conversation with a, a beautiful person. I talked about it last week. I don't want to go into any more detail on that per se, but just to say the conversation's continuing. And it's spilled over not just to her, but now to her husband, who we're going to be going out to dinner with on Tuesday night over in San Antonio. We're actually ditching our life group to go spend the evening with people who are wanting to know more about Jesus. And it's going to be a beautiful moment. So just that story continues to unfold, and that's all I want to say about that, but that God is up to something amazing. But all we're doing is showing up and answering questions. And it's, it's as, just as Pepper said, it's just natural. It's very organic in nature. And it's not stressful. I don't show up having a plan, a strategy to, to, to preach the, you know, the, spirit, the four spiritual laws to, to this precious person. It's just show up, believe that God's doing something, they're going to ask questions, and oh my gosh, uh, it's happening again and again. So it's a beautiful thing. So on the journey, the miracles continue. I mean, this, this thing is not slowing down. We're in Paul's third missionary journey. Now we're beginning to see a lot of the places that he's in right now. We're going to look at that, Acts chapter 20. A lot of the places that he's in right now are places where Scripture is being written. He's writing letters to the churches that he's visiting because now they've been around two, three, four years, five years, eight years. They've been around long enough to start having people problems. You know, I remember a pastor telling me, you know, it would be so awesome. You know, the church would be amazing if it weren't for people. 
It's kind of, it's because we're all messed up. I mean, we are the church, right? And, uh, but there's some truth to that. Anywhere you get all of us together, we're, there's going to be a mess, right? This thing is messy. And uh, if you want it neat and tidy, then uh, I'm sorry, that's not the nature of, of the kingdom of God. Sorry. I wish it was neat and tidy. I'd like that a little better, but it's not. And I've just come to re- accept that, the, that piece of it. We're dealing with people and we're dealing with mess. We're dealing with brokenness. We're dealing with a fallen world. And uh, each day we're on a journey trying to take a step closer to growing in maturity. Acts 20, verse 1 and 2. I'll be using the ESV version tonight. After the uproar ceased. Remember, Paul again showed up. And because of this disruption piece, all of a sudden they're running him out of town. They wanted to get rid of him. And that leads us into this this next phase here. Remember, third missionary journey. So He's gone back through all these churches several times. He's visiting all these outposts, churches, gatherings, fellowships. They're all over, some larger than others, but mostly small gatherings. But he keeps going back and forth into them to encourage and to check on them. That's, he's an apostle by nature. Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Remember the Macedonian call we talked about earlier? in the book. He's going back through this same area, and you're going to see a lot of movement in these scriptures right here. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So that's Paul. He's on the journey. He's going back to the churches and reconnecting with everybody. How are you doing? How's it coming along? Got issues? And sure enough, there are issues. But, uh, but we'll look at some of that. Now, this is... Um, this is a map we've been using, and you can see it looks kind of complicated, and it's probably hard to see from where you're at. I apologize for that. But right here in Jerusalem, we started down here, and now you've got all this tracking going along. And again, uh, you've got Macedonia up here, this large region here. You've got Greece. There's Italy over here. Uh, and then all this area. But look at the distance being covered here. This is no short, you know, hop, skip, and a jump over to somewhere else. I mean... We're talking a lot of travel right now. And so they stayed in various places for various lengths of time, sometimes for months, uh, in Ephesus for three years, ministering there. And because of that ministry in Ephesus and the time spent there diving deep with those people, the Bible tells us that all of Asia, which is this entire area right here, all of Asia heard the gospel. They heard the good news because of those three years of investing in the people there. And so we see that happening. So now, we're, notice there's Corinth right there. Corinth was a, was a hot mess. That, that church had some stuff going on, and yet some amazing things happened within that context. There's Ephesus right there, another key place. In Ephesus right there, when he spent some time there, we'll look at that in a minute, that is actually, in his last little jog here, a lot of back and forth here, But when he was here at the very end, Corinth and Ephesus, these two, that's when he wrote the book of Romans and the letter to the Romans, which is one of the most theological books that he wrote and one of my favorite books in the Scripture. So moving along, we'll keep going, and we'll jump back and forth to that map just so you get an idea where they were. It says there he spent three months. Now, why would he spend three months uh, back in this area of Macedonia? 
or Greeks. And the reason he spent three months there is because it was probably wintertime and it was difficult to sail during that time of year. So they would kind of batten the hatches down and they would, they would uh, uh, not travel a lot during that time. So he spent three months there and here's what happened. A plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. So he decided to return through Macedonia. So there's a lot of movement going on right now. And again, this disruption piece. Everywhere he goes, the word's getting out. These subversives, these revolutionaries, they're causing problems. And do you remember what some of the major issues were? I don't know if you remember this, but some of the major issues were not theological as much as they were economical. (laughs) Because what was happening is people were getting born again. Devils were getting cast out of spiritualists. It was disrupting the ecosystem and disrupting the local economy. Idol worship, remember the the silversmith was concerned that this is going to impact our sales. Our bottom line is about to be impacted because of this, this guy coming in here and teaching that idols are not real gods. And so a lot of the disruption came because here's the thing. When revival comes, when awakening comes, when the gospel comes, it affects everything. Think of it in terms as water rising. And a lot of the damage that happened back in Katrina, yes, it was from the rain, it was because some of the dams gave way, but it was the water that rose, not the water that fell. That didn't create the damage, it was the water that rose and stayed. And the water that rose there touched everything. And I've always thought of awakening in the same way. A lot of times we talk about the latter rain and we think about rains and all that. But it's not the rain coming down, it's the water that rises that does the most damage. And so the impact happens when the water rises. So when I pray for awakening for our community and the surrounding areas, I'm asking the water to rise in every church. I'm not just praying for Oak Hills. I would ask the Lord to allow us the privilege of being an epicenter of something. But at the end of the day, what if, what if God shows up in a miraculous, supernatural way at Bethany Lutheran Church? Well, what we ought to do is come around them and go, way to go. We're going to support, encourage, be a part, high five, pray for you. What do you need? What if he shows up supernaturally at Holy Ghost Lutheran and all of a sudden revival breaks out there? You know what we need to do? Clap, cheer, and get involved. Because we want the water level to rise everywhere. Amen? It should, have, it should impact our schools. It should impact our economy. Uh, but it will be disruptive. Make no bones about it. It will disrupt the status quo and the ecosystem will be shaken. Right. You can't, don't take into consideration he's walking as Jesus walked a lot on all his journey. So his walking precipitated, I think, a much slower pace, which meant more relational connections and more actual conversations. So it's a little different than jumping on Facebook and writing a post, isn't it? And thinking, okay, I just hit a thousand people. Well, eh, maybe, maybe not but maybe having a short conversation down at the peach tree or, or 
natural grocer or Walmart, wherever, you know, where you're actually engaging somebody in a human experience. Again, it's the incarnation piece. Jesus became flesh, and he moved into the neighborhood. And he moved in the neighborhood because he dwelt among them. And so it's who we dwell among and the relationships we build that are going to carry the force of the gospel. Amen? Not just a lot of bump and runs. So there he spent three months when a plot was made against him by the Jews. And he was about, so here's a lot of movement now. He decided to return through Macedonia. We saw that on the map. He's going back up to that area. And Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. All these guys are disciples. These are guys that are growing, but notice they're from all different places, and they're all connecting. And, and Paul, in a really real sense, is building a network, a kingdom network everywhere he goes. These are guys from different places who are accompanying him together. They're making this journey, and they're going from place to place, encouraging the other churches, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, the two Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So you've got all these guys, and notice I've just put the note here as a reminder, Paul wrote the letter of Romans during his final stay in Corinth. And so we get the most deeply theological book written from the place that was the biggest train wreck of them all, Corinth. Corinth was a mess. Just read the books. Read the books. There's a shift in 2 Corinthians where you begin to see things come together, and Paul he was so concerned about the letter that he wrote to Corinth from Ephesus because he also wrote a letter there to the Corinthians. And it was a, basically a letter of correction and rebuke. And he was concerned that his letter would be too strong. And he even talks about that he even was even sorry that he wrote the letter. He even says, I, I, I'm, I'm actually sorry that I sent that. But then he said, but it resulted in, and he goes on to explain that, Later, he talks about their reconciliation. So apparently that letter, which we can read, if you read 1 Corinthians, you're like, wow. This is, there's a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of correction. A lot of, uh, I mean, there were crazy things going on in that church group, that family. And Paul came along and brought some hard correction. Steve? The life of the Corinth was so debauched. And people were described, he lives like a Mm. It was a derogatory term. Yeah. Yeah, we saw the same thing in Crete when Titus says, you know, they're a bunch of Cretans. I mean, he's using it as a derogatory term, saying, you know, you're Corinthian or you're Cretan or you're, you know, you're a Philistine. You know, I mean, it was a derogatory term to say you're from that area because it was so known. So Paul wrote the letter of Romans during his final saying, Corinth. So we have a lot of the New Testament letters being written during these journeys, and a lot of them were for correction, they were for doctrine. And we have the Bible in the form that we have it, whether you've got your, I've got this one on, a, on, a, on an iPad mini, or you've got it in a leather-bound book, or whatever you have. At the end of the day, you have to realize, we have it in this nice form, but you have to realize these are letters that were compiled, that were written for specific moments in the history of the church. So you need to read them from both a historical perspective to say, what was Paul, why did Paul write this letter? What was the point? And when you read it from that, rather than just read it to be inspired, if you just read the Bible to be an inspirational book, you're going to miss much of the message of the Bible. Like the book of Romans, when you dive into the theology of it and realize this 
This is amazing. Ephesians is a shorter version of that. Colossians is an even shorter highlight reel of the book of Romans. And you realize there are reasons why Paul had to take certain themes to write to certain churches, certain fellowships. And when you begin to get a handle on that, the Bible starts to make sense. And you begin to realize, oh, this isn't contradicting this. He was actually writing to a specific situation. Oh, maybe we don't all have to cut our hair off. Maybe we don't all have to wear, you know, not cut our hair. I mean, the things that we've extrapolated from the Bible as what we think we should be doing behavior-wise, many times we're not meant for that at all. It was actually a specific issue being addressed at a specific time and a specific place in a specific violation. And Paul had to address those things because it was creating all kinds of havoc. One night, I'm going to unpack divorce in this room and it's going to rock your world because it is not what you think it is. The idea of putting away and what it was, I'm going to unpack that one day. I'll, I'll announce it because everybody needs to hear that. I may do it on Sunday, but not this Sunday, but a Sunday. Because we need to deal with this because the church has taken that and turned it into an erroneous teaching. And it has wrecked people right and left. And what we think is divorce in our culture is not the same thing that it was in theirs. And so we need to unpack that because it has destroyed and shipwrecked families right and left. So we'll save that for another time. Moving right along, right? God, the barometric pressure changed in the room just a little bit. Did y'all feel that? It's just me. So, all right. So now, again, a lot of this, this movement right here, Corinth, Ephesus, and then Paul, he had this heart for Rome. He had a desire to, to go to Rome, but he also wanted to get back to Jerusalem. Why would he want to go back to Jerusalem again? Rome and Jerusalem are like on opposite ends of the world, aren't they? I mean, he wants to get back over here, but then we're talking here. We're talking about as far away in that known world to them as you can get. But he needed to get back to Jerusalem. The reason is, and the, and the other letters will substantiate this, is that he and the disciples were actually raising funds for the Christians back in Jerusalem where there was not only drought, but there was persecution going on. They were actually raising support for them. So they were actually raising funds and they were going to take them back and deliver them. Hand deliver them to take care of and help the people out. So there, were, there are a lot of various reasons why these trips were made. And you have to realize, and the reason I'm telling you all these things is because I want you to see this for what it is. These are real people taking care of real needs and real issues. They're dealing with what's in front of them, and the Lord is ordering their steps through it. But again, if you just take your Bible and you read it as a devotional book every day, and you're trying to extrapolate themes that make you feel good, and, not, and you miss the history of it, you miss the humanity of it. It's not just spiritual, it's also historical. It's also, it's also I guess the best word I can say is practical. The Bible is a practical book, and it gives us practical things. So I just want to encourage you in that. Read it. Yes, inspirational. I do too. I read devos all the time and love them, and I write them every day. But I also read the Bible to learn how to navigate reality and, and navigate life because the Bible works in real life. So Acts 20, verse 5. These, those disciples, went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away. A lot of movement here. Sailed away from Philippi. Remember the book of Philippians? 
Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. They're just giving details of the journey. Remember, Luke's a physician. He's a detail guy. So he's given us, he's given us all the details of, of their travels. I just kept throwing that map up there because I want to keep our eyes on all these different places, these different pieces. There's Troas up here. There's Philippi up here. They're all in pretty close proximity, but yet there's still it's, it's journey to get there. So, verse 7. Now we have another shift where something amazing happens and a miracle happens with some, I think the Bible can have a lot of funny points. This is going to be funny. So on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech. Now that's, that's code for he preached a long time. He prolonged his speech until midnight. You guys get tore up when I go seven minutes over. Can you imagine... We just keep this thing going, right? Till midnight. Can you imagine? <laughs> How did Paul do it? So look at this. He prolonged his speech until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So he's setting the scene here. All these people come together. Paul's sharing the good news. The gospel. He's probably talking about the journeys. I'm sure he's telling stories of what happened. And the people are apparently into it and riveted, and he's moved and motivated. So he's going for hours, hours. Now look what happens. And a young man named Eutychus. By the way, that word, the word Eutychus means one with luck or lucky one. So Eutychus, sitting at the window, look what happens. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. You have no idea how comforting that is to me. Just saying. And uh, so I think it's funny. So Eutychus is sitting up in the window. He, he just goes to sleep. He's tired. He's wore out. This is going on and on. He's probably checking his watch, you know, or whatever. <laughs> he's, he's like, what time is it? And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. The commentator talks about the construct of was taken up dead, not as dead. He was dead. He really died. It killed him. Who knows, broke his neck, whatever, he fell three stories, and he died. Remember what the word but means also, and, but, and. And Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. So this is one of those moments where we could say how all day long, or we could just say wow. Wow and embrace the mystery of God, that in this moment, Paul knew something that was not natural. He knew something that was otherworldly, that was from an unseen realm. He understood something from a whole different perspective than we would have naturally. This is called supernatural. Super being above nature, natural. This was supernatural in scope. And Paul, he just bends over him. Now, and it, the Bible doesn't go to detail. It doesn't say they anointed him with oil. They prayed the prayer of faith. They, it doesn't say any of that. It just says, Paul said, don't be alarmed. His life is in him. Now look what the next verse says. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, so it just kind of moves on. I guess he set the guy down and went up and had dinner. I mean, he's, he's hungry. He's been preaching for hours. So he eats. He conversed with them a long while. So he's eating. They're having a great time. Until daybreak. This is a long night, folks. 
and so departed. So he takes off. And then look what it says, verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. <laughs> no, that's funny way it's, that's parsed out. But, but in other words, they were celebrating. He lived. E- exactly what Paul said happened. He was alive and they were, they were not a little comforted. They were a lot comforted. They were encouraged. Because whatever happened, we don't have any detail. And the reason we don't is because so much of the Bible is not caught up in the how. It's caught up in the wow. We're all caught up in the how. We want to know, well, how did he pray? Did he pray the prayer of faith? Did he, did he invoke the name of Jesus Christ? Did he, in, did he call on the blood of Christ? Did he, did he rebuke devils? Did, I mean, we get so caught up in the minutia of it Instead of just going, wow, that is amazing. Go God. Yay, God. We get so caught up in the how that we miss the beauty of the wow. And I love this, that the Scripture doesn't even break it down for us. The Scripture makes a lot of assumptions that in an Eastern mindset, they would just go with it. Westerners, like us, Greek and Western thinkers, we want to know the details, right? We want to know how the watch... Don't just tell me the time. I want to know how that watch works. Is that a solar watch? Is it digital or analog? You know, is it connected to the internet? I mean, can you operate your phone through your watch? Can you talk to somebody? I mean, we want to know all the details and ins and outs. The Eastern mindset would just read that and go, yeah, God healed him. But not even worrying how. Just that, just that he did. Celebrating that he did. I love that about the Eastern mentality. You have to realize when you're reading an Eastern book, which the Bible is, that it's sometimes difficult to take our Western mindset and enter into that Eastern mentality. So in the simplest terms, we as Westerners, we want to break it down. That's why we dissect animals in high school lab class. We want to know the parts, how it works, all the pieces. And an Easterner would look at a, at, a, at a frog, whatever you're dissecting on the table, and just go, wow, it's a frog. It's amazing. Look, look what God did. Look how the creation of life, the beauty of life, because they see it as the whole. They're holistic in their thinking. And so that doesn't mean it's a bad thing that we're Western. It's actually beautiful. You know, a lot of things come out of that that are great. Detailed thinkers, deep thinkers. But there also comes a point where you have to say, okay, the reason the Bible didn't go into detail on that is because we don't need to know the detail on that. Okay? We just don't need to know that. And Derek, I'm going to keep moving for time's sake. So you can ask me a question afterwards. Feel free to talk. So let's keep moving. So that's verse 12. They took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted, and then the Bible moves on. It just goes on. So I wanted to say this because we have to understand something, that when we're talking about the ministry of the kingdom, it's messy. Dealing with people, dealing with brokenness, dealing with... I'll put it this way, because this came up in a conversation. It's funny, and Annette and I were talking the other day about this, how we who are followers of Jesus expect people who are not followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus. And then when they don't, we get disappointed in them. We often take our values and our way of thinking, our paradigm, our theology, and we put it over other people's lives as a template, and we expect them to live up to that. And wouldn't it be diff- different if we approached people who didn't know Jesus 
with grace, with mercy, with compassion, instead of judgment and expectations. Because what happens is, is we raise these bars of expectations over people who are not even capable of living up to those expectations, and when they don't, we're disappointed in them. And then we judge, we condemn, we pronounce a sentence. I'm not saying we do that systematically. We do it very intuitively because I don't know about you, but I'm really good at it. This has been developed over a lifetime. And so I have to disrupt that process by the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, no, no, I can't expect that person to to not drop the F-bomb in my presence. Why does that offend me? Should that offend me? They don't even walk with Christ. There's, there's no, why would I get offended by that? And I'm growing in that. That's the beauty of it. This is, this is a growth piece. So the kingdom, what we do, it's messy. And that scripture of Proverbs, I want to bring that up because what just happened is a guy fell out of the window at midnight and died. And it created a disruption and a mess and Paul just handled it and kept moving. And then he went and ate, had dinner. So, I mean, we create, we, we treat some of these things like they're such big deals. And Paul seemed to, cre- to treat the miraculous, the supernatural, like it was just the normal Christian life. Just another day. So, I love, I love the scripture in Proverbs 14.4, Without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. In other words, if there's a clean stable, there's no harvest happening because there's no oxen in there. There's no power, no horsepower, no ox power to actually do the harvest. But when harvest is happening, you've got a messy stall. The stall is the church. The oxen are people. And if the church is empty, it'll be clean. But here's the deal. Like that room back there full of students and teenagers, it's just going to get messed up. You walk back there and you get upset. Listen, there's a bunch of teenagers back there. Do you remember when you were a teenager and how you kept your room? It's the same thing. It's messy back there. The reason it's messy is because we're developing the next generation for a harvest. Amen? It's just going to happen. Walls are going to get marked up down in the children's area. Right, Annette? Stuff's going to happen. You know, some kid's going to take the top off a marker and just go to town and create a piece of art. You know? And we get upset, but here's the deal. It's a messy stall. But it's a messy stall because life's happening. There's not a week that we walk through here where there's not candle wax now on here because of the, the thing. There's not uh, grape juice, sticky floor. Sometimes you walk in and you go, what is that? It's grape juice because somebody dropped their grape juice. Listen, it's going to get messy. We had last week over 550 people here. You know what that means? Messy. <laughs> it's just going to get more messy as the kingdom grows and expands. So... Be okay with messy in the natural and the physical, but be okay with it with people, okay? It's just going to happen. So the ministry, work, and activity of the king is messy, disruptive, awkward, but it's also beautiful, powerful, transformational, and it's our destiny as sons and daughters of God. We get to deal with the mess. So get your pooper scooper out. And let's go to town. Let's win people to Jesus. The broken, the bruised, the crushed, the down and outers, the up and outers. Let's win them to Christ. Amen? And make disciples. Amen? Amen. And enjoy. It's okay to be messy. It's all right. It's all right. So, last couple of verses. Four verses. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there 
for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So they're planning their trip. You're going to go by boat. I'll meet you. I'm going to go around. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board, and then we went. There's not a lot of depth in that. He's just give, This is Luke giving details. Now, last two verses. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. So they're just going place to place to place. He's just describing the journey. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Here's the deal. They're, they're hand-delivering these, these funds that are going to help the Christians in Jerusalem. So they're, they're, they're trying to get there, and they're trying to get there before the day of Pentecost or on. So they have a bit of a deadline. So that's why all the... It's why it sounds so crazy. But here's an interesting little tidbit. We'll end with this tonight. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Now, here's the deal. Paul spent how many years in Ephesus? Three years in Ephesus. He had developed deep, deep relationships. So this is a practical, pragmatic thing. Had he have gone to Ephesus, he would have been mauled by his friends and the people he loved, that he had built relationships, he wouldn't have been able to get out of there. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like when some of you, to avoid engaging a lot of people because you're trying to get to the bathroom, will go through the back way. Because you know if, if you go down that hall, the gauntlet we call it, you're going to get stopped by five or six or seven people, right? So you'll sneak around. There's things that we do because it's practical and pragmatic. Paul knew, I've got to get there. We're going to get these funds there. Now remember, Paul's heart was Rome though. He'd already announced, I want to go to Rome. He's actually going the opposite way because he wants to hand deliver this because he's so excited about what happens. You'll see in the book of Galatians, he refers to it, the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he refers to the offering. He refers to the giving. A lot of what we have in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, he's referring to. We've converted that into tithing scriptures. That's not what that's talking about. Philippians 4 is referring to the offering and taking care of the saints. So that's something we can unpack on another time. But again, this is just diving in deeper and learning more about what the Bible says so that we're not going off. Have you ever been on social media and somebody posts something that you know is not true, but it's like some urban legend? Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to any of those websites like Snopes and others that actually either substantiate or, you know, they'll say, oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a Facebook myth that was started seven years ago. And these things will cycle around. A lot of times what, what many people will do is they'll, they'll see a post on Facebook and they think it's true because it's in print and it's on the internet, so it's got to be true, right? And what will they do? They will repost it and they will actually perpetuate the lie, the myth. And so those things come across mine, or somebody will instant, me- you know, they'll message me, and it'll be some goofy, whacked out thing that I'm like, gosh, that was seven years ago when we, they were raising funds for this child that was, I mean, this stuff happens all the time. There's all kinds of scams, and all, but here's the thing, a lot of Christians buy into these things, and they will perpetuate the lie because they don't check the facts. Now here's the thing, we do that with the Bible a lot. We do that with the Scriptures. 
We don't check the facts. We don't go deep enough to understand what it's really saying. We don't understand history. We don't understand the languages. I'm not saying you've got to be a Bible scholar to speak the truth. I'm just saying know the truth, and the truth will make you free on so many levels. And so the reason why we're deep diving and going through a lot of this stuff, and I'm trying to unpack and mine some of this out, is so that we're not perpetuating erroneous teaching and erroneous theology. It's done enough damage to the body of Christ and even worse to the people who don't know Jesus. So we're going to take our time to keep diving in deep. And I appreciate your patience and all this, but know when I'm unpacking these things, I'm doing it with a heart so that we don't perpetuate myths. You know, myths like, you know, God helps those who help themselves. We all know that's in the Bible, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's Archie Bunker. You could quote Archie Bunker on that one, but... But I remember that episode of All in the Family where he, he was quoting that to Edith, and she's like, that's not in the Bible. And, and, you know, but we do those kinds of things. And so the Bible says that we're to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman rightly dividing the word of truth. So thank you for coming. Thank you for being a part of this because we're learning, we're growing. And the beauty of it is, is when we speak the truth in love, it's going to change lives. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand together. We'll pray, be dismissed. Father, we love you. We honor you. Lord, we, as students of your word, we want to grow. We want to grow. Give us grace as we continue to unpack and take this journey through the book of Acts. There's so many pieces, so many nuances to these passages. Lord, give us grace. Give us grace to learn. And give us grace, not only for one another, Give us great grace for those that are outside of the family of, of God that have never come to know Jesus in a personal way, but only know you from a distance. Give us grace to love them toward Christ, to love them well, to be disruptive in the most positive sense of the word. Lord, we know that love, love wins, grace wins, mercy triumphs. And love covers a multitude of sins. So give us grace to love well, to mercy well, to grace well. Those that are outside the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen. Thank you.